welcome to your episode 255 of the At Percussion podcast. My name is Ben Charles. Today's date is September 27th, and we'll be releasing this episode on October 29th. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Carly Vina. Hey, everybody. Ksenia Kamunovich. Hey, Ben. And as always, Casey Cangelosi. How's it going, Casey? Hey, how's it going, buddy? And we have a special guest co-host today. Brian Nozny is joining us yet again. Hi. Welcome, Brian. And uh, as I mentioned, today's episode is being released on October 29th. So just a few little news items on what happened in history on October 29th. Uh, in 1969, October 29th, uh, the New York underground newspaper Rat became the first publication to compile various Paul is Dead clues, which Casey reported on, I think, last episode when Casey trolled me a little bit. Uh, in 1978, Rush released their album Hemispheres, but possibly more significantly than that, in 1957, Bobby Helms recorded the song Jingle Bell Rock. And then in 2000, no one laughs, sorry. <laughs> that was my attempt to, to reverse troll Casey. And then uh, the, the big news item I wanted to share from history on October 29th, in 2004, George W. Bush announced his campaign song, uh, his campaign song was Still the One by the band Orleans. And there's an interview on the website songfacts.com with John Hall, who's the uh, writer of that song. And John Hall says, so I was upset. I happened to see it on TV the first time they announced it. I was watching Lou Dobbs, who was on CNN at the time, and he said, we're going to Columbus, Ohio for the unveiling of the Bush-Cheney 04 campaign theme song. And there was President George W. Bush with the confetti coming down and hands up and the V salute for victory. And our song, the Orleans original master, blaring out of the speakers. My wife Melanie and I, our chins dropped to the floor. When we picked them back up, I started making phone calls and checking with people to see if anyone had given permission. It turned out no one had been asked for, for permission. So Casey reported about this like a week or two ago about how, you know, political campaigns sometimes use songs without asking for permission. And then the, the interesting thing I found about this with John Hall, uh, the, the Song Facts reports, uh, everything George W. Bush supported, war in Iraq, drilling for oil, climate change denial, was the polar opposite of what John stood for. So he ran for Congress. Jackson Brown teamed up with Dar Williams and Pete Seeger for a series of benefit concerts to raise cash for his campaign. And John won, taking office in 2007. So that's an, an interesting uh, follow-up to Casey's little thing about how can use it. I, I think it was Carly's thing, actually. And oh, Carly's thing, sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. And it was John McCain and Foo Fighters. Yeah, that's I was, what I, was. I was just I was just editing that episode. And yeah, that's amazing that this is that common. Yeah, and I, I found it like so cool that that like literally like sitting on his couch that day watching that inspired him to get into politics and he ran for Congress and won. So... Uh, that's what happened in history today. Now is time. We are going to welcome our guest, Sean LaFrenz. Sean has been the senior marketing manager of band and orchestra products for Pearl Corporation of Nashville, Tennessee since 2007. In his current position, Sean oversees the product development, artist relations, and marketing of all Pearl concert and marching percussion products, Adams Musical Instruments, Pearl Flutes, and Adams Marching Brass Percussion, excuse me, Marching Brass Instruments in the United States and Canada. Sean also, in 1996, founded the percussion specialty retailer, The Percussion Source, and he also has a rewarding career as a freelancer in the Nashville area. So welcome, Sean, to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So, uh, Sean, I wanted to ask, just to get us started off here, because uh, I'm sure we have some people that are interested in a career in the percussion industry, uh, that maybe you could shine some light on this, because it's something I've always been confused about. Pearl is a Japanese corporation, correct, that makes drums mostly, I think, in Taiwan. Adams is based in Holland. And then there is Pearl USA, who, is, who you are aff affiliated with. So how does all this international right. networking work? Right. So Pearl itself, Pearl Musical Instruments, is uh, the parent company. Um, and this is maybe one of the first times to maybe bring this up. Pearl is actually still a family-owned private company uh, in Japan. Um, started in 1946. So we're at next year will be the 75th anniversary of Pearl. Uh, that company started there added a factory in Taiwan uh, in the 70s, added another factory in China in the 2000s. Uh, Pearl USA, uh, Pearl Corporation here in Nashville is one of a handful of wholly owned subsidiary companies. Um, so we're a division, if you will, of Pearl Musical Instruments Japan. So yes, it is a Japanese company distributed through uh, its own fully owned subsidiaries like Pearl Europe, Pearl USA, Pearl Latin America, Pearl Japan, Pearl China, uh, but then through about 80 plus other distributors throughout the world. The connection with Adams uh, came about uh, in 1997, late 96, early 97, uh, when the marching arts uh, were putting more and more demands on programs and uh, Pearl marching equipment was doing the job, but we didn't have, the Pearl company didn't have access to the marimbas and everything else that was needed for the front ensembles. And that was one of the main impetuses for uh, establishing a relationship with Adams uh, in Holland. So in 97, Pearl in US became the North American distributor of Adams musical instruments. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of connections there. Adams is its own company distributed in the US. J Pearl Japan is also the Adams distributor in Japan, but there are different distributors in different parts of the world. Uh, so not everywhere does Pearl and Adams fit together, um, but in the US they fit together very nicely. So the companies seem like one, we work together very closely to make sure that there's a, uh, um, a, a seamless connection and we're not overlapping on products to create confusion. But yeah, it's a, it's a complex system built up over decades, but uh, it, it seems to work well. So far so good, right? Are your marimbas generally better than marimba ones? This question from Carly. That is, is, that a, is that an official question? Yeah. My unbiased opinion is absolutely, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was just yeah that came in earlier um, yeah i'm sure yeah um uh, i'll i'll steamroll casey here and mention that that sean was actually very courteous in our, our email exchange getting getting booked for this episode he was like i don't want this to come off as an ad for pearl adams oh. like you know I'm, I'm very cautious about that and i mentioned we've actually had a few industry people on before and 
it seems pretty much everyone in the industry, even people that like are the name and face of a company, everyone is very happy to say, listen, in today's marketplace, everyone has to make good products. You cannot get away with making bad products. This is just our vision of what that product can, can be. And I think Sean yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> absolutely. That's the way it is. You know, if you do something, um, you know, it's just like making music, right? It's just like playing. When you understand and know and do it yourself, you can recognize what it takes to get when somebody else does it as well, right? You know what that takes. We have, everybody has mad respect for each other. Um, Franz has, uh, has often uh, said, Franz Winkles, the president of, of Adams, um, he's, he's always said, you know, it, go ahead and do something once, congratulations, do it twice or 10 times, good for you. Now do it 100 times, now do it 1,000 times. Those are different things. And when you have somebody that's able to accomplish something like that, you have to give them that respect and, and everybody is deserving of, of what they're able to accomplish. I like the, the analogy you made to players. Like, you, you know, you see great marimba players that, you know, pat each other on the back and it's not, it's not that they're saying, Nancy Zilsman isn't saying I'm better than you. You know, she's, she can yeah. recognize other great players. Well, well I, had, I had a question. In front of you. What's that? She doesn't say that in front of you, but I'm sure. Later. <laughs> well, I, I had another question. Um, I, a while back, we had Lee Howard Stevens on. Um, and actually, I think it might have even been a different podcast. I heard Lee talking about this. But he said that uh, the American drum companies like Rogers and Slingerland used to be king. And when you look at old, you know, old, old Buddy Rich videos and Gene Krupa, uh, you see these like American brands and then I think it was he said the 70s is when the Japanese companies like Pearl and Yamaha came in and uh, the sort of American arrogance they said you know we're Rogers we'll never fail and then Pearl and Yamaha came in with great products that undercut them on price. Um, Sean could you talk a little bit about that history a little more in depth? Sure well there's it's a little it's not quite as cut and dry as that I would say you know nothing is simple. Um, if we go back through like the Pearl history uh, specifically, I'll, I'll speak to that side of it. Um, uh, from the 1946, when Katsumi Yanagazawa uh, started the company, uh, April 2nd, 1946, um, in a little garden shed kind of thing. This is immediate post-war Japan. And so you have uh, obviously a lot of, a lot of hard work. Uh, going on there. So um, near what is uh, Uena Park now in Tokyo, um, he had a little uh, a little garden shed and he was collecting uh, metal parts as he could and actually started making music stands. That was the Pearl product that got started. Um, and then by the by about 1957 or so, uh, the company had grown. They were already making concert drums marching drums, they were making uh, uh, timpani, they were making uh, Latin percussion instruments within 10 years. So by about 57, his son joins, they start an export department. So from about 1957 onwards, you start seeing uh, Pearl actually as a company making drum sets and drums for other brand names. So Pearl at some point was making over 30 brand names uh, that you would recognize, uh, like uh, Apollo and Maxwin and uh, all these other things. So there were uh, a lot of, um, 
it's what's called OEM or open-ended manufacturing. They were making things. It was a, it was a factory, but they were making things and they were being presented and sold as other brand names. It wasn't until 1966, I believe, that you actually saw the first Pearl branded product. So for 20 years, Pearl had been manufacturing drums and percussion. And a lot of people actually were playing Pearl drums and, and a lot of people got their start, you know, their beginner drum sets and things starting um, on, on what would be Pearl drums. And uh, let me see here if I've got a, a list. Um, some of those other names like Speedfire, um, Westbury, Wright, Royce uh, was another name, uh, Crest, Apollo, Arbor, IR, Dixon, CB700, that was a big name wow. uh, for a long time. Dixon uh, and and other other uh, things too. Uh, Olds band instruments. Uh, Mark II was a brand. Holton used to sell drums. That's the what's now famous for French horns. Um, so lots and lots of brands uh, all over and sold all over. So you you start to see then in the late '60s you see Pearl actually starting to make their own branded product, and then starting to produce all these other uh, drums alongside of it, but it really wasn't until, um, you, you know, in the seventies music has taken off, you know, that whole, that whole rock and roll thing is happening. Right. So, <laughs> uh, there's a lot more demand for product a lot. And, and, uh, the, the music demands are changing from the drum sets, you know, as with everything else, the things that were made in the fifties, won't work for the music demands and the hard hitting styles of the seventies and early eighties. Um, so that's when they opened another factory in Taiwan and it wasn't actually until, uh, 1980 that you actually saw the, the now, uh, famous Pearl export drum set, um, that you can find pretty much in any corner of the world at this, <laughs> at this time, it became uh, crazy. So, uh, so yeah, there was that period when uh, the Japanese manufacturing, uh, much the same way that Chinese manufacturing now, um, but it was during that post-war and um, in the 60s as things were coming through, 50s and 60s, there was an efficiency and a cost advantage with the Japanese makers. And it wasn't that they were, um, uh, there wasn't anything necessarily intentional about it. Their, their business was just growing so quickly. They just, it became what everybody was wanting. And uh, yeah, the American companies had to, had to uh, try to compete and some did and some didn't. So I think, yeah. I think the word Ben used was undercutting. I mean, that sounds pretty intentional, right, Ben? You know, is that, is that, that seems just trying to start some of these. <laughs> Seems I mean, I yeah, like the idea of undercutting is just like, that's what you do in business. You try and make a better product for a cheaper price. And what, I'm, just know, trying, I'm just trying to embarrass you. Ben. Uh, yeah, we no, know. No. I know. There were, there were some, there were, that is one, that is one strategy. You can also just make something really good and, and offer it to people too. <laughs> well, well in this, let me understand. So if I wanted to start a drum company, but all I know how to do is, you know, make a shell and I know how to drill shells and, and layer shells and lacquer shells and finish shells. I might hire a company that makes lugs and rims and, 
and throw offs. And I mean, you, you would, you would outsource all those things. And, and it sounds like Pearl did a lot of that for a lot of different companies. So, I mean, Pearl supported a lot of companies, I mean, aside from, from themselves. Yeah. Pearl was the company that actually did all of that stuff. Uh, the, the, the metal work, the shells, the finishing, the boxing, the, the actual manufacturer, yeah. um, particular strength. And, and to this day, Pearl is still the world's largest percussion company. And it's, and you know, that's not, that's hard fought over 75 years. Not, you know, not just, <laughs> not just, uh, that didn't happen overnight by, by chance. You know, there's a lot of hard work and, uh, sweat and tears in, in making that happen worldwide. So, um, well, I, well, I remember, yeah. I, I mean, since I was a kid, just Pearl, you know, drum sets, uh, on yeah. my, on my walls, cut out of magazines. It was like, here's the Tama section. Here's the, here's the. Uh, Mapex section. Here's the Pearl section. I mean, there was always just a huge Pearl section. I mean, Pearl was always in the forefront, you know? Yeah, it was, uh, I had heard a, a, a statistic while I was in the, in the retail end of, of things that at one point in the 80s, um, there was some, I have no idea where this information came from, but this is one of those anecdotes that sticks with you that, uh, um, that the uh, total sales of, of drum sets worldwide, that over 50% of the time, any drum set was bought new or used, it was a Pearl kit. And that, that's and probably a Pearl export. Um, I mean, there's just a massive, uh, a massive demand that uh, the Pearl export just was in the right place at the right time uh, to meet. And uh, uh, yeah, it became, uh, a major force for sure. Do you have a reasonable guess who's like second in that same vein? It would it would vary all over okay. uh, at that point. Uh, I, so. I have no idea at those okay. at those days. That's one of those one of those anecdotes, probably urban myth. That that next episode you'll probably find proof to to dispute it or something like that. So. Right. <laughs> It doesn't matter who came in second because they've been obliterated. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think you mean undercut. Undercut, sorry, undercut, I'm yes. Sorry. I'm so, I'm sorry. I learned a new word, it's okay, yes. Um, we had a Facebook question for Sean here, um, and this one comes from uh, Mike Neumeyer, for example, that's how my Serbian mouth pronounces that. But uh, Mike says, how has learning music helped you in your business endeavors and vice versa? Has working business and sales helped your musicianship or your music career? Sure. Well, I mean, there's no no question that that uh, the interaction between those two worlds uh, it, it's you can't untangle that. Um, we we know as musicians the the things you learn, uh, especially in ensemble playing, when you're playing with a large group or you're playing in a group at all. Um, the interpersonal skills you have to have in order to make that work. Um, you have to be prepared and come to the table with what you're responsible for. There's no difference between, you know, notes uh, on drums and, you know, the next business meeting. Uh, you have to come prepared. You got to be ready. You know, people are expecting you to, to do your thing. So there's a lot of crossover. Um, as I was coming through school and, and, uh, really getting into the music retail side and, and the gear side of it. Um, I was at uh, University of Iowa when I was still working in retail. That was what I was doing um, to get through school, was playing and um, 
uh, and working in the shop. And, and I was struck with how similar the sales process is to teaching. When you're teaching, and you know, I was teaching private lessons, and and obviously having gone through a lot of those things, when you're teaching somebody, you you're trying to get through to them maybe a particular concept or idea or some sort of breakthrough, and as a teacher, you have to say that three ways, four ways, ten different ways before there's finally that aha moment when it clicks. And you have to keep trying to, you know, kind of find out what, what are the barriers to this person understanding what we're saying? How do I probe a little bit deeper to understand why they're not wanting to do this? Or, you know, am I just completely wrong? You know, let me reevaluate. Maybe it's not this. Maybe I need to address some basic fundamental thing over here. The sales process and the business side of it is, is exactly the same as breaking through to somebody on some sort of musical concept as well. You have to go through those same steps. If you've got an idea that you want to put forward, you have to figure out a way to say that and present that so that the other person understands what's in your head, you know, so that you can present that concept. Uh, and that's an important skill in business is being able to communicate your idea so that other people understand you. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't been a teacher playing music, trying to teach somebody a basic swing beat on drum set. You know, I mean, that, it's the same thing, you know, uh, it, it literally, there's no, there's, there's really no separation. Nothing exists in a vacuum. You, you, uh, you bring all those skills every day, no matter what you're doing. You know, speaking of what you do and how it relates to school and you know, all of us teach at, at universities I and mean, we, we, we have students who are going to go out in the job world. And I, I know that, um, when I'm recommending, oh, you should, you know, apply for this job, apply for this competition. We kind of have a set path of jobs that we think of for our students and career paths. And um, one of them I, I don't really know how to look for is how to tap into the industry, like an industry job like yourself. And we've had, I mean, I think every industry person we've had has some on the show has had some kind of you know, um, uh, undergraduate, at least m musical background, like they went through a traditional program and then they ended up working with the company. How do we, how do we look for those types of opportunities for our students and kind of, I don't know, get that on the radar the way we have other jobs on the radar. Yeah. I can recommend a couple of different, a couple of different pathways. Um, a lot of music stores and that music retail experience, will be needing informed help, be it in the, you know, in the repair area, being in the teaching area. A lot of, of full-line retailers especially will have lesson studios in their stores. That's a great way for uh, students to just get a feel for what that environment is, you know, and just, you know, doing the teaching thing, they're maybe helping somebody with a very basic beginner year one, how to hold the sticks player. Um, but they're, in, but they're interacting on the music product side in that environment and they're, you know, they're observing and, and watching that. Another big way in the college setting is to look for internships and a lot of manufacturers and vendors will have, um, uh, paid and unpaid, uh, summer internships. Pearl, we run a summer internship program through our marketing department. Um, so we have, we take four, uh, unpaid. Uh, interns every year, and we work them through every aspect of um, working at Pearl. Um, 
through the sales side, through the marketing side, they're involved in special projects. It's a very immersive six to eight week uh, program. And it really gives people a snapshot of what the music products industry is really about and how it works. And that's a great way to kind of toe in and, and see where things are at. Um, obviously those, um, so I'm sorry. Are those really competitive, would you say? You get like a ton of applicants, um, or is it real, you know, real yeah, for, process? For our, for our four positions, we'll have, I would say on an average year, we'll probably have 50 to 60 applicants for those four positions. Yeah. Um, and they come from a variety of backgrounds being from either musical or marketing uh, backgrounds. Um, so, you know, sometimes there have been musicians that are thinking about communications as a, as a minor or, you know, just have that interest or they're interested in the music products industry. Um, or you have an actual marketing or communications major that happens to be a drummer, you know, and so there's that it can go both ways on that. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's very, uh, very much about, uh, bringing that creative and communication skill to the corporate world and that, that understanding of what's needed in the, on the music product side. We always talk about, um, you know, it, it may sound a little trite, but being able to walk the walk, right. And, and walk the talk, you've got to know what a band director is talking about innately at some level, if you're going to connect with them in an advertisement. You have to understand that environment. You have got to be a part of it and having had experience it in order to understand what's important for a teacher in middle school versus a college professor when you're talking about product differentiation. So having people involved in the music industry that have experience um, in teaching and playing obviously is very important because it helps connect the products and understand what's important to who we're trying to present the products, you know, and make them for. So absolutely. Well, and you have to know when the band directors don't know what they're talking about, which is more common. Well, it can be sure. I mean, um, you know, a clarinet, uh, a, a clarinet major who is now running a, a high school band program could be, you know, completely underwater. They may just not understand what the first step should be. So being able to, to assess that and go, okay, hang on, let me, you know, let me throw you a lifeline here. <laughs> you connect you with somebody. Let me, let me, let me find a few things here for you. And, and that can be invaluable. And of course, uh, as a, as a brand, you know, at some point you, you want to have the music happen. You want it, you know, you want to make something successful. Nobody wants anybody to fail. So everybody pitches in. Uh, and, and, you know, it's all hands on deck when somebody is obviously waving the flag, you know, everybody pitches in to help. So that's a great thing about this industry. Not to, I, I'm going to have to like put it, here's another Casey fire I'm putting out that he just tried to start. I think that every like, you know, the clarinet player that's now directing a high school band, they, they know what the problem is. They just might not be able to, how to, to know how to articulate it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, like my percussion section sounds bad. What do I do? What they really mean is I don't know how to, you know, put a drum head on something like that. And I think that like goes even further if you've worked in that role that you know it's a pretty common thing that that a, you know, high school band director that's a non-percussionist can't change a drum head, something like that. So, yeah, I Absolutely. see that. I mean, and and it's no fault of theirs. I mean, a a first or second year teacher just getting started in the program 
is going to have a lot more questions than that same clarinet playing band director 10 years later or 15 years later. They will have acquired the skill set and know where they need to ask for help and how to get that help um, by the time that's done. So um, band directors, you know, we've all, that's just one, one little microcosm of the number of people that don't have enough help <laughs> to make music a happy, fun and exciting thing for young players, especially, you know, that's a, that's a challenging position to be in. And, and, and it's a, it's something that everybody has to be uh, unified and supporting, I think, we're honest with ourselves. Sean, I'm, I'm just curious, going back to the, the interim uh, topic for a minute, are there certain skill sets that you see? I mean, if you have 50 or 60 people applying for four positions, are there skill sets that you tend to see that, that usually set those four apart or that set the top 10, if you will, apart? Um, I would say um, people that, you know, it's no different than a lot of other uh, job applications. It's those other experiences. Um, I think it's great, you know, when people apply. Um, and it, and it, our internships here are not determined by one person. We, we do a blind rating. Uh, we let everybody in the department rate the applications. Um, and uh, so it's, it's almost kind of like a, a screened audition uh, by the, the cover letter and, and resume that's, that's sent in. And it seems to be the people that have the extra experiences, the other things that they've done. I think it's great when somebody applies and they were the section leader in their, you know, in their band and, you know, they played here and here. But this isn't a music uh, job. That's not necessarily, you know, a lot of people do have the misconception that, that all we do is sit around and play drums all day. But uh, I wish that was the case. I really, really do. <laughs> I can count on one hand in 13 years where we were able to just sit around and play drums all day at Pearl. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's not um, it's not about performance. You know, I think it, it's important that you understand what's needed and understand the environment, but your actual playing skill is not necessarily what's needed for every position. That's for sure. Communication skills are very important. Can you write a letter? Are there any typos on your resume? You know, the, the basic stuff. Um, those, those are important things and need to be paid attention to because you've got a lot of other people lined up that'll, that'll do all those things for you, so. True, absolutely. Well, Sean, as we're talking about um, college students and career paths and that sort of thing, what do you think is most important for young professionals and college students to know about interacting with the percussion industry? Uh, the most important thing, boy. Or some or important you... things. <laughs> um, I, th I think one thing that's that's needed is to understand the width and breadth of what the uh, what the product companies are trying to accomplish. You know, there's uh, there's a real need, especially you know, in our current economic climate and and school business climate with COVID and limited programs and all the reality that we're all living right now. Um, you know, the companies are, are in business to sell things, right? So uh, it's important to understand that it's, it's a wide range 
of musical styles and environments and genres and applications. And in fact, the wider the understanding of those genres and, and not to have the bias against, well, that music, you know, I don't like that music, so that's no good, you know. No, you, you have to be you have to be open and willing to listen to everybody and and be ready to help. I'm I've been I've been caught saying this more than once. You know, for us, if there's a drum, it should say pearl on it, right? I mean, that's my attitude. I don't care where that drum is, it's and I don't care who's playing it. But if there's music and there's a drum or a marimba, obviously for the Adam side of it, uh, all of those things, you know, we want to be a part of that. Um, and we want to solve those musical problems to make sure that our products are being used in all those varied situations. So um, I, I guess uh, being open-minded is the, the short answer <laughs> to your question, I guess, and not to, not to pigeonhole anything as better or worse because every musician has a, uh, has a need and has a, desire to do better and you know what you're trying to do is connect with that person at a creative and a professional level to help them achieve that musical goal so you can't bring a you can't bring a um an attitude that that a a certain kind of music or where music is being made that that, that can't enter into your conversation in any way so being being as well versed in a wide variety of styles is is really recommended sure absolutely diversity of styles and i'm sure also i mean the the customers people that buy drums it's not just the elite performers or even music majors or professionals you know is like some people it's a hobby it's you know a pastime it's you know and and that's I'm sure, a huge proportion of probably um, mostly not the elites actually right right and we get so yeah. caught up i think in in our our bubble of university and conservatory trained musicians sure and and on the music product side sometimes the person you're talking to isn't even the musician you know it's grandma who's who's buying the instrument for their grandson or granddaughter or it's an aunt or uncle that is you know helping somebody get an instrument or or you know doing that and and in fact, breaking down those barriers to access, uh, that's a particular uh, charge of, of me personally. I've always been interested in trying to make um, music and, and instruments available to people. I feel like there's, there's so much opportunity for people to make music. There's so many people that want to do this, right? And most of the time, the reason somebody doesn't do it is because they can't. They don't have access to a drum. They don't have access to a marimba. Um, the, uh, they don't have the, um, the chance to play because they live in a, in a small apartment. They can't make that kind of noise or something like that. So anything we can do to help break down those barriers to access, either through instrument design or, um, you know, how the instrument is made available or anything like that, those are really important things. Because um, that beginner today, you know, I, I, I've, had this this line of thought for many many years you know the the next greatest name your artist the next great uh you know bob insights or the next great nancy zeltzman or you know cloyd duff or chris lamb whoever it is there she's out there she's just nine and she needs a marimba right i mean that's the that's the reality we've got 
we've got players that we all want to hear because we understand that is that is what you know makes the world light up. I want to hear that person, but if if I can't get her that marimba, maybe she'll never get that spark, and we're all a little bit less for that. You know, so anything we can do to help make that possible should be a part of our uh, a part of our everyday, and and we try to do that as much as we can. Absolutely. Well, and one other thing I've been thinking about so much in, you know, during the pandemic is it's shining a light on the issues we have as percussionists in, in education, especially like students having an instrument at home. If they're stuck at home for two months or six months, as the case is for a lot of people, depending on where you are, and it might be a year, um, you know, having, a, having access to an affordable, decent quality instrument is, is amazing and not everybody has it. So we appreciate the work that, that you all are doing with the Adams Academy instruments and. Yeah. I mean, even down to those, to those bell kits, you know, I mean, uh, any instrument versus no instrument, right? I mean, even those bell kits, which, you know, it are really, really hard to listen to. There are some fundamental problems with those old, you know, the, the steel bar things in terms of a really enriching learning experience but they do accomplish some important basics and some important fundamentals in education and teaching. And even something like that um, is, is still an important uh, thing. And even, you know, uh, the mallet station, our, our electronic uh, co controller has, has really sort of bridged a lot of those gaps in unintended ways uh, for that same reason. It's, it's relatively low cost in, in comparison to a lot of other things. And, and it's, something that people can do in relative silence uh, in an apartment through headphones, which addresses a lot of issues in, you know, when people are all, all tied up together, you know, and we're, we're in close living situations and, and we don't have access to those uh, five octave marimbas anymore. Um, it can, those tools and those, those kinds of, uh, of instruments can really help, uh, really help bridge that gap and, and open new pathways for people. So. That's exciting. It's really exciting and fun to see. Um, Sean, one, uh, another role that you have is uh, in artist relations. And my question then goes towards um, how do you get to decide and pick who your next artist is? Is this a person that you have on your map for a while because they've won competitions? They, of course, are a stellar artist themselves but then do you get a recommendation is that what you're looking for do they should they just approach you if they're interested if they love your instruments how does the process work can you tell us for those young ambitious ones yeah it's uh it, it is an I, I would say there's not one answer to this um because there are different kinds of artists and some people are on the list for different reasons and and i'll try to explain that um Yes, of course. Uh, the artist program is fundamentally a part of our marketing efforts, right? When, it, when we come out with something or we're talking to somebody, almost the immediate first question is, oh, who's playing? So when we have uh, top world-class professionals playing the instruments and we can say, well, go listen to Dennis Chambers, go listen to Nancy Zeltzman, go listen to Jihei Young, you know, go listen to Tom Freer, go listen to, you know, name it. And that helps, that's shorthand for if it's good enough for them, it'll work in your situation. You know, that's the fundamental reason for that. However, there are 
more than just one um, one kind of audience that you're trying to reach. And uh, we have to have um, different levels of artist support. Um, certainly a an artist like a uh, uh, like Ray Luzier, who plays with Korn, has completely different needs than Brian Nosny. Full disclosure, Brian's an artist, <laughs> Pearl Adams' artist. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it, you know, even though Brian in his head thinks he's just as good as Ray Luzier and deserves everything. <laughs> that Ray Sounds fairly similar. Uh, Brian can play most of those Korn tunes, I'm pretty sure, and knows most of those. unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, but obviously there's a different set of needs and, and people are in different points in their career. And uh, so establishing a relationship is, is often more important than what the person is necessarily doing because, the, you know, what happens five years from now is, is potentially what, what makes the relationship that you've built for 10 years uh, really blossom and, and become something that everybody goes, wow, that's amazing. And that's, you're looking for that wow moment. So there are circles of influence we talk about with, maybe it's geographic, maybe it's genre, maybe it's um, maybe somebody like a Casey Cooper who has, you know, over a million people following him on, on social media. And he's, he's always played Pearl. He plays Pearl in front of a million people every week that's a lot of influence that that says, okay, I want to do what Casey Cooper does. Now that, that same person is not the same. He's on, he's an artist for a completely different reason than, um, you know, it's somebody in the orchestral world or somebody teaching at a, at a mid, a mid level, uh, university, you know, or certainly somebody who's, uh, just playing in a, in a professional symphony orchestra. Um, there's a lot of different, a lot of different circles of influence. So that's really the, the thing is to be established and to be doing your thing, right? Um, find your voice, make your music, do what you want to do. And hopefully you take us with you. That's the, that's the goal. So. I, I have, I have a goof, kind of goofy question about drum set artists specifically and I guess it's not a pearl specific question but I'm always amazed how many drum set artists keep the badge name on, mm. on in their concerts you know because they have all this lighting all this aesthetic and they have like their band names everywhere and is there is there something contractual or something that happens there like I think of um you know one of your artists Mike Mangini plays for Dream Theater and has played for like everyone and, you know, there's such a spectacular aesthetic to everything, a lighting show, and there's a lot of noise on stage, but then you got Pearl and Pearl on each bass drum. Yep. And I don't know, like, how is, how is that so standard in, like, across all companies and drummers? Uh, it's pure love, I think. It's, it's uh -huh. just... No. <laughs> no, I, I <laughs> well, would that say was that actually I, my guess, is they just yeah. they, love their, they love their drums, you know? That's, uh, I mean, fundamentally, I think they wouldn't be playing it, especially artists, you know, as you know, at a top level, they could choose whatever. They have to love it. Um, but yeah, I would say that that is a part of, of, uh, of agreements, again, because we want to be able to point to everybody, point everybody to that artist and say, see what they can do with it. You, what you're trying to accomplish, here's an example of the sound, the durability, the flexibility, 
the way that it can it can um, you know be a chameleon in terms of musical genres or whatever it is. We want that Pearl logo out there. We want that Adams logo out there so that people understand. Wow, I really like that. I love that sound. I want to get that. So yeah, you you know at a certain level you're going to uh, you're going to require that of an artist that they leave that logo there for that exact reason. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the same reason that, that, uh, you know, Michael Jordan wears, yeah. wears that Nike swoosh. I mean, it, he's always going to have that, those Nikes on, right? Yeah. What's the point if they don't say Nike? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So Sean, everybody as a follow-up question, did you leave the did you leave the CarMax decal on your car or did you take that off? <laughs> I still have the I still have the price sticker in the window. I don't touch anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the topic of uh, artists endorsers for companies, one thing that's that's so important for, for these companies is to have a diverse roster of artists and represent all sorts of different people. And Carly, I believe you had a topic that was somewhat related to that today. Yeah, we've talked some about accessibility and diversity, um, and that's a nice segue to our, our topic today. So I came across an article on Cornell University's website about some changes that have been made in recent years to their music curriculum and also what some of the response has been from students. Um, and in, in some ways to me, these seem like really welcome and maybe long overdue updates to the traditional conservatory curriculum. But there's another part of me that wonders, what are we leaving out when we make these changes, which can just open up a whole other can of worms. And I think this was so thought provoking to me right now because of the times we're living through um, in one way or another, we've had time and space to reconsider and think about some of the ways we live and we work and create music. And in a lot of cases, I think the answer to why we do things the way we do is often just because we've always done them that way and it's easy to continue with the status quo. Um, so this article is titled Music Curriculum Expands to Reach Students of Diverse Musical Backgrounds. It was written by Kathy Hovis and published on the Cornell website on March 22nd. This was back in 2016. And basically the changes that have happened at, at Cornell include revamping the traditional music theory and history classes that would normally be, I think, four semesters of each there. Um, to focus on more experiential learning, more interaction, um, and also to include more diverse musical traditions and styles than just focusing on Western art music. So this new curriculum is really meant to be more accessible and more appealing to a broader range of students, which allows for a more diverse class of music majors with a right, wider range of career paths and goals than maybe just graduating and auditioning for orchestras or going into academia or you know, teaching in public schools. So the new curriculum is meant to be more inclusive, allow students to pursue concentrated study and careers, not just in performance or musicology or music history, um, but also different cultural studies, ethnomusicology, um, fields that relate music with technology and, and those types of business related careers too. Um, and also something to consider a lot of the music students at Cornell and I think a lot of these Ivy League programs are also double majoring. Um, and some of these, these, it gives them a little bit more flexibility to be able to, to draw, draw connections between music and their other fields. 
So one example of a new class in Cornell that, that was established when they made these changes um, is the elements of music class, which on the surface probably you would expect to be like a typical music theory, introduction to music theory kind of course. Um, but this one emphasizes experiential learning and they, use, they do activities like using a monochord to learn about the calculations of, you know, finding pitches with mathematical ratios. Um, it said they, they learn about history of music notation by examining actual medieval music books, uh, which is a lot more hands-on than probably most of us reading about it in the grout. Uh, and they, they've done a twist and sweat to the oldies exercise video um, to talk about and think about how music relates to dance and fitness. So probably out of the box compared to what most of us experienced in undergraduate music history classes and theory classes. And the, the article talks about how listening examples range from the Rite of Spring to Peter Gabriel and probably, I imagine, everything in between. So some of the first things that come to mind for me when I was thinking about this music curricula moving in this direction at different schools is that I think if, if we can help prepare students for more diverse careers, um, and careers that will be available, not just what's available now, but in the future, in the lifetime of our students, that's a really wonderful thing, right? I think we all agree that. Um, not, not everybody needs to just graduate and, you know, be in a professional full-time orchestra. We'd have way too many people if that was everybody's goal, or even be a full-time professor or, or music educator. Um, and of course, there's room in our field for more diverse and more innovative paths and creative paths. So I think it's a a really positive thing in that regard. But I'm wondering what you all think about this and if anybody's first reaction might have been something like, how could we let someone graduate with a music degree if they didn't learn about analyzing the Tristan chord or if they didn't learn how to analyze 12 tone music with a matrix and these things, like what do we give up if we move in different directions? It looks like- I have that. I had that reaction a little bit, um, but this article is not very specific, like what they'll leave out, I think. And also, I think the, the thing that kind of bothered me was, I think there's a lot of straw manning right here. It's like setting up how other classes supposedly are not and saying, oh, we're this way, we include this and we're going to include that. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, my traditional theory course that I took included all that stuff. I mean you could have a debate over how much weight to put in what area, or there's one quote in here that's saying, instead of um, teaching people that classical is all written and jazz is all improvised, I'm paraphrasing. It's like, wait a minute, but I, I've never heard anyone tell me that. Like, I've been, you know, I've been teaching music for forever now. I've gone to school forever now. Like, no, nobody in jazz improvisation class, we had to transcribe. A, a very like tedious hard solo you know like with transcribe that's that's writing that's making jazz literate like so i don't know that there were a lot of statements like that in here where they're saying oh hey we're doing this radical shift by changing this because you never had that before it's like no wait i had all of that before what are you what are you talking about i, I will say for me one thing in particular that sticks out to me is i, I think casey kind of touched on this is like what where, what career path, I guess, are we aiming these students at? And in particular for music education students, if you look at our college music curriculum, uh, basically we're told the pinnacle of music is like Bach to late romantic music, and then the 20th century was really adventurous. Uh, but there's 
so little. I mean, I, I, in my college, I never took a class on rock and roll. I actually never took a class on jazz, although I studied it in applied lessons. I never, and that was at UNT, the best jazz school in the world, so they claim. Uh, I never took anything that mentioned hip hop, not even like in my music history class, like the little section in the end where they throw in a Beatles tune or something. There was nothing about hip hop. Um, and if you are teaching uh, children, especially let's say inner city children about music and you're trying to get, get them to connect to Mozart, uh, that's, I think eventually you can get there, but you might have some, some intermediary stuff first. And this made me think so much of, have any of you guys watched the, uh, the Dave Letterman Netflix show, it's called uh, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. And there were two episodes in particular, I'll, I'll save you the spoiler alert for the, the Melinda Gates episode, you can watch that. She talks about uh, representation for women, but also the Tina Fey episode. Tina Fey was the first head writer for Saturday Night Live. And she said in one of her first, you know, boardroom meetings about, uh, you know, I don't know if boardroom's the right term, but it's first pitch meetings about different sketches, uh, and she said it was the time when like everyone was doing like the classic stuff like Nike, Nike classic or you know Coca-Cola classic these sorts of things and someone came in and, and pitched a, uh, a fake commercial for Kotex classic and she said all, all the guys in the room were like I, you know I don't know <laughs> uh, and she said being the only woman in the room she was like wait 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 let, let's hear this one like it, it could be really funny and she talked about like once they 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 pitched the the ad or the the fake ad they were like oh my god that's that's hilarious and they, they did it and it was so successful and she said if there hadn't been a woman in the room like that would have just got swept under the rug and it was like one of the best fake ads that snl run ran of that entire season uh, oh, I see, I see. so yeah so i really do think that uh if, if you are a music educator and your only musical background is entirely not representative of the let's be honest, like 11 to 18 year old students that you're going to be teaching, I, I think you, your university has done a disservice to you. Um, so that's, that's my take on it. I, and I understand this is also one of those talks where we can sit around and talk about it all day. Is our curriculum going to change that much? That's maybe not. Um, but I, I do think that that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind as, especially a music educator, the representation that you're dealing with how can you connect with your students? What is their music? How can you connect, I don't know, Billie Eilish to Mozart in the long run? Well, and you're absolutely right, Ben, on, on all your points. My, I think the big problem that everyone's having is that they don't know, it goes back to what Casey said, they don't know what to cut. And, but the problem is, is that I wonder if curriculums are approaching it from the wrong direction. They're looking at, we want to add all of these things and then questioning, well, crap, how do we get it all? How do we fit all this in the box? And we should be maybe looking at it from the other end of, okay, what is really not relevant anymore that we could trim that down a little bit to make room for these other things, to make room for a popular music course, to make room for a marketing for musicians course, to make room for a you know, a recording technologies course that's required, like all of these things are, are important. But the problem is that when you start to mention when, you know, the director of band starts to mention, well, do we really need that much, you know, music history, you know, the music history professor is potentially going to be very, very upset with that. And so it's, it's this vicious cycle, I think, unfortunately. That kind of brings up something that I was thinking of um, when I read that article and, and 
knew that you guys were, were all going to be in the room here, being uh, the, the university superstars that you are and me looking at your, your reality from the outside, right? I'm curious how similar or dissimilar that, that article, you know, uh, the, the outline of that article is to the conversations of a commercial music program or a music business program and the traditional studio performance uh, programs. Because it seems that there is a little bit of a, well, that's the commercial music side. We don't do all that stuff. Kind of like what you were talking about, uh, Brian, with the, uh, you know, do we really need a marketing course or something like that? Well, I can tell you there's a lot of musicians that need some basic marketing skills. Uh, because if you're going to put yourself out there as a musician, you need to know how to do that. <laughs> you know, again, nothing in a vacuum. So I'm just curious how, how similar or dissimilar to that conversation is, is this? Uh, I'll take my answer offline. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it's uh, related, but I think what programs need to do is t tell kids what they're going after and what they're getting at like our industry program, there's a section about recording, there's classes, class called legal aspects. Um, like, I think you just have to know like, hey, this major is targeted at getting you this. So, and, and what kind of frustrates me sometimes when people propose curriculum changes and, it, and, it, and from what I can tell, this one is reading as if it's taking the traditional music education track and saying, oh, we want to change it in these ways. And again, I think they're kind of vague the way they're, they're, proposed, they're saying they have changes, because I think a lot of those things already exist within the traditional classes and everything. But um, I get frustrated when people talk about, let's make big curriculum changes because A, we need to give kids what they want more. And they say they might want more classes that do this. They might want more classes that do that. But on the same hand, it's our responsibility to give the kids not what they want, but what they need. And I mean, we see that all over the country. I mean, hey, we have a, a major in this now. You can major in, it's like, okay, if we just want to give kids what they want, like, hey, here's a beer drinking major. Have a, you can major in drinking beer. What a great way to recruit. It's like, and I think, I know it's an exaggeration, but I think programs literally do this. And I think it's really irresponsible. It's like, yes, you might really enjoy a additional class on this and that or yeah let's get rid of theory three and add i don't know some class that they all want it's like great that's great that you want that but they're entrusting us to give them what they need to be competitive in the field so i think it's interesting that we have that conversation going on on one hand like we're, we're talking about this in one conversation and then i don't know if you all saw just like in this last week john singer our friend john singer percussionist he posted on his Facebook page uh, of, of ongoing conversation that we've been in and out of about DMAs, like how much the doctoral degree costs, is it really worth getting one? And just, you know, within the first, I think, day or so, it was like 160 comments and lots of opinion and, oh yeah, these degrees are so expensive and you still might not get a job. And so, so I think it's interesting. There's like this disparity on one side of like, there's a problem with the terminal degree and how many jobs are out there. And then we're having this other conversation simultaneously saying, hey, we need to get more students into our programs. We need to draw more kids in and we need to water down the degree. It's like, wait a minute, if we're diluting the degree and like possibly making them less competitive, and I know arguably they would say, no, we're making them more competitive because we're getting them these additional skills and stuff. 
Um, so that's, that's maybe a separate conversation, but I think it's also really sad that people will say, oh, we need to also include diversity. So we're going to try to get a more diverse student population by making our degree more appealing and possibly easier so we can get people from different, different places and of different uh, disadvantages and stuff like that. And then wait a minute, like then, so you're going to lure more people into your degree and are you giving them all scholarships? Are you taking care of them all? And there's this whole other conversation about how few jobs there are. I don't think that's, I don't think this is all, any of this is very cool. Well, here's, here's one thought, Casey, is I, I think this shift in curriculum, one of, the, one of the important things that it does is offer a sense of legitimacy to non-Western musical traditions that you can study this at Cornell. And I don't know specifics if they're offering the history of hip hop at Cornell and you can major in hip hop. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's really what's happening there, but that's important. I think, I think it plays into also why it's so timely right now. It plays into systemic racism and, and historic advantages and disadvantages that people have. Um, but, but, so how I think many famous, but, but like how many famous hip hop artists are there because they majored in hip hop? I mean, I think it's just dishonest. It's like, sure, giving a student what they want, hey, I want to major in hip hop, but like the truth is like, dude, I want to major in heavy metal, but like you don't need a degree to go be a heavy metal band. Like actually what you should do is just like go exclusively work your butt off doing that only. So again, I think it's, I think it's a trick. Do you really need a degree to play in an orchestra? Um, no, Have not, ne not necessarily. Outside if schools weren't offering degrees in performance, could you but gain those skills somewhere else? But, well, well, I would argue you probably do. I mean, yeah, you can gain the skills, but yeah, you probably do need the experience and you can't, it's much, much harder to just pick up the orchestra playing experience. You need access to a whole orchestra. Um, whereas like, if you want to start a metal band, you need like a garage and some friends. Um, and that's like literally what has happened. I mean, that's literally, and the article even says like, remember the Beatles can't read music. It's like, well, yeah, duh, that's, and, and nor did they go to music school. That's not what, that's not what music school has ever tried to do. Well, let me reel it back for, for a second because something else that Sean mentioned made me think about, I was thinking about what I think a lot of music technology or music business students might feel is in, in my experience, at least in general, I think that most music technology or music business students are taking the same theory as performers and taking the same musicology as performers, maybe one or two semesters fewer. I'm not sure. I'm sure it varies, but it's still geared towards, you know, these students might be um, rock drum set players and they want to go and record, you know, run audio in clubs or something like that. And how is learning about uh, Monteverdi impactful for them musically. So I, I think it's a lot of good questions to be asking. And, and for me right now, thinking about what, what can we do to serve our students and to, to serve their future opportunities, it's a, it's a good thing to look at. Everything's changing, even if Casey doesn't want to admit it. I think that's what an industry program's for though. It's like, that's why we have industry programs and that's why we have jazz program. It's like, I don't, I don't know, I just the, uh, let's just give everyone a little sprinkling of everything and try to keep everyone happy and try to make it as broadly appealing as possible as, as uh, seems dishonest. Yeah, maybe unethical to me. Well, certainly a lively debate. <laughs> <laughs> but 
for time's sake, maybe well, you guys are sensitive. This is not doesn't feel like any <laughs> feels like nothing. Uh, move to a slightly different topic. Uh, so, Sean, I had a question. First of all, I just wanted to mention that I think uh, Sean might have set a record for ratio of joke questions to real questions from Facebook. <laughs> for sure. Um, and so, Sean, Sean, I have I another set of people. Yeah. I was like, Sean was like, I know there's a lot of a lot of jokes in there. Uh, and I was like, well, actually, I, some of them I'd, I'd like to actually turn into uh, a bit of serious questions. So uh, Matt Jordan says, how do I calibrate my mallet station? But I wanted to actually spin that into a real question. It seems like two of the biggest products that Sean has had his hands in at Pearl in the past 20 years or so have been the uh, Philharmonic snare drums, which he has uh, a couple of sitting on that desk behind him there for anyone watching on YouTube, and the the Pearl Mallet Station, which as far as I can tell is a huge, uh, huge product. And also Carly was mentioning like access to instruments for you know lower budget. Um, that seems to be a, a, a sweet spot in the market for that one. So could you tell us, I guess, since we're running a little short on time, in brief terms about your uh, experience with development of those two products? Yeah, uh, those two specifically. Well, I mean, the Philharmonic snare drum, um, we celebrated the 20th anniversary. So it actually came out uh, in 2000. I started at Pearl in 2007. So it was, there was, it was a thing, but uh, as far as uh, certain models and, uh, and things like the, uh, specifically the drums that I've been involved with the design on the Philharmonic, uh, the Sousa drum, the 15-8 Sousa drum, the, certainly the pancake drum uh, with Tom Freer recently, the, the cast bronze 20th anniversary drum, the, uh, uh, the field drums, um, and some of those, those types of things on the concert side. Um, also, you know, just all of those things, the, the Academy instruments and, um, you know, in marching the the one touch strainer and the development of mallet station, all those all those product developments are really um, it, you know necessity is the mother of invention, right? I, there's a need that needs to be met. There's something either either through um, what's now being expected of the player to do that the existing instrument doesn't do, or there's some musical tug. That, that what they have currently doesn't allow them to get there. Another good example are the, uh, the Pearl uh, multi-foot bass drum legs. Um, that's a, uh, that's a, just a personal favorite of mine. Uh, Matt Jordan and I worked closely on that. You mentioned Matt. Um, and that was actually the first, um, uh, the first patent uh, that I'm the inventor on uh, that, I, that was awarded. Uh, I love those Matt things. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and, and that's just that's just personal experience being so frustrated with not being able to, you know, pull a pull a bass drum out and and put it flat so you could play it. Those you are know. everywhere at JMU. We're tripping over them. I just I, I just I bought. That, I don't know. I, I, I heard that since that was released, awesome. Winger has actually sold fewer chairs. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. I like that. You know, so that that's that's just it's an answer to a need, and part of that whole process. Uh, Mallet Station is a good example of that too. It, you know, Pearl's been involved in electronics since the '80s. Honestly, the the, the first electronics were uh, Syncussion, I think, and they had some crazy ones um, like uh, 
Joe Boxer and X Pearl, and there were all these electronic experiments. And and then recently, then in 2010, there was the uh, the Redbox, uh, the E Pro Live uh, with the Redbox module, and now the really industry uh, setting um, standard setting Mimic Pro on the electronic drum side. So there was all this this creativity and this energy going on inside Pearl about electronics and everything, and and several of us were, were involved in that and, and going, you know, we really want the concert world <laughs> to enjoy this electronic thing too. How do we break that down? How can we get more concert players involved in using electronics in their music making? And obviously there have been other electronic controllers, but nothing that really connected the way that, that, uh, that this one does. This is more, you know, caught up technology that it's, it's using state of the art sensors with the, the Keith McMillan uh, smart fabric. It's using, um, you know, current technologies uh, to, to really access the world of sound libraries that's out there. So uh, it was, you know, driven by probably a dozen different uh, ideas and conversations, but then pulling on those threads and like, okay, where, where does that lead? How, you know, how can we make, make it easier for people to get into electronic music and how can I, you know, make something that, that a concert player is going to be interested in or have any use for. And then you, you present something and, and, you know, we were lucky to find partners in Keith McMillan and, and really drive this thing at a price point that really makes it accessible. And suddenly a product is being used in ways you didn't even think of. The, the multi-fit multi bass drum legs, great example. I see those, you know, suddenly they're out on marching band fields. They're in, uh, you know, jazz clubs being used with things. People are using them with concert field drums. People are using, you know, I was thinking multi-percussion solos, right? <laughs> in my head, uh, I'm sure everybody else was thinking, but, but suddenly you have this thing, you're like, oh, that can hook on here. I want to use it like this. And, and great ideas are like that. And, and, and you pull on those threads and sometimes it unravels and sometimes you find out you're, you're, uh, you're connected to something even bigger. So, you that could process of development. You could lock yeah. a steering wheel with them. That's true too. Yeah. You know those. You can old protect yourself on a on a late night walk. You can you can do a number of things with those. <laughs> well, uh, you say you mentioned the whole uh, necessity is the mother invention, and Casey and I were both wondering about this actually, especially with the Philharmonic drums. Uh, in the bar talk, there's a lot of like turning the snares on and off. Have, have oh you ever God. been making like a foot pedal where you? That was done. Uh, that was done. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, oh, can we talk about that for like an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Go to the old Colbert catalogs. There was a, a, a cable hi-hat uh, connection to a snare throw. Uh, so you could control your snares on and off. At, yep. But it's at, Colbert, at, so it probably costs like $3,000. Well, D, uh, D marks in the day, right? <laughs> cool. Good to know. Casey's probably right. going to hear about that one. Uh huh. Uh, oh, ooh, good one, Ben. Yeah, yeah. Today's Rose Casey Day. I'm yeah. I'm so mad that you didn't like laugh or react more in my my Today in History thing. But anyway, he wasn't <laughs> laughing. We had uh, two other Facebook questions. I wanted to make sure we we got to. Uh, one is from uh, I apologize if I butcher the name here. Yusuf Sharonik. Uh, and he says, what is the most important thing you learned from Tom Davis at Iowa? Okay, so first off, if you don't know Yusuf Sharonik, 
uh, go find out. Uh, Ethos Percussion, uh, one of the best hand drum players uh, on the on the face of this earth, and uh, a good friend. He and I were actually in school together at Iowa, so he's a couple years ahead of me. So uh, uh, I love that question, though. Um, Yusuf, hey Yusuf, um, uh, I hear uh, Tom Davis's voice in my head all the time. Um, and you know you've all had a great teacher in your life that has made that that kind of impact but tom davis had a voice very similar to casey actually um deep and just very you know very fm radio all the time very soothing hey uh, that, ben? hey ben take that ben yeah ben already for dean so uh you know he, he had a very calming and 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 uh, his demeanor was very uh, very much about um, just approaching things very openly, just the way that he approached things. But I hear two things in my head all the time from him. One is on time is a half hour early. That's That was rule number one for, for all percussion majors. And uh, the other thing that just sticks with me all the time that he said was, well, if you want to get better at something, you have to practice. You have to do that. If you want to get better at tuning drums, guess what? You actually have to practice tuning drums. You want to get better at sight reading. You have to practice sight reading. It's not just going to automatically happen. If you want to get better at marketing, you want to get better at making web pages. You want to get better at biking or running or something like that. There's no secret here. You have to practice that. And you have to allow yourself the process of practice. You have to allow the mistakes. You have to know that you're just not going to be able to do it the first time. You have to go through the process, and that his his head his voice is in my head all the time. With that, you want to get better at that, but you got to go practice. You know, that's it. Isn't it amazing? Like the like blatantly obvious advice, but in right. the hand in the hands of someone you like really admire. Just hearing like someone who you really really admire and look up to say like, "Oh yeah, you you got to practicing is important." You're like, yeah. that's suddenly so profound <laughs> right and realizing that you have to you know you, you as as uh, as john wooten is 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 famed for saying you've got to slow it down you've got to break it down so that you can throw it down there you go john i i, I owe you five bucks so the <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna edit that out john sorry yeah okay the uh uh but that's the point, you know, if you want to get this section better, you've got to stop and practice that section. You've got to do these things, you know, you have to go back to the fundamentals. Um, I remember also just, just learn, learning the totality of the piece. Uh, there's a, there's a, a good story. Steve Schick is, is also a, the, probably the, the famed uh, graduate of that program with Tom Davis. And uh, when he was, there's a good story that Davis would always tell us about Schick learning King of Denmark. Uh, at the time, you know, nobody could figure out what to do with this thing, and, and Schick really blew the world apart with it, obviously. But he noticed that the, to the degree that Steve was practicing, he would breathe exactly the same way every time he played through the piece. He would push his glasses up at exactly the same moment every time as he played through the piece. The totality of understanding and knowing no, when you say you know something and you go through it and you have to practice it, we're talking about practicing it, you know, really at that 
that really molecular granular level to really gain understanding and and those those things are invaluable in in everyday life so thanks td <laughs> and then we had a uh, one other question i wanted to get to um and that was from art avila jr he says what was your first ever pearl product and your most recent pearl acquisition the the last acquisition i got is is easy the the pearl mouse station was the is the last thing I got for sure. The uh, first one is interesting. So I guess as a child, I was always beating on stuff as I'm sure we all were. Um, and one day walking over to our house when I was about four years old, my grandmother picked a pearl snare drum up out of the garbage, knocked on the door and said, are you getting rid of this? And they said, yeah, I don't want that anymore. You get it out of here. She brought it to our house when I was really young. I want to say four or five. And uh, that drum sat there, and I'd, I'd play on it and do things. I still have the drum. So my first, my first Pearl product was the first drum I ever was given from my grandma when she walked over and saved it. And I've, I've since identified it as about a 1968-69 President snare drum, a Pearl President snare. So um, that would have been, I'll show my age, that would have been in like 73 or 74. So what I'm hearing is don't buy anything, just go dumpster diving, you get all the pearl stuff you need. Hey, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, go for sound first, everything else will follow. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure and we will see all of you on the next episode number 256. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Sean.